Well, hello there. It is a Tuesday night recording of the Weekend IndyCar Listener Q and a show all driven by your questions. That's the Q. Sometimes, on occasion, I deliver the A's. More often than not, I probably deliver fails. But nonetheless, I am Marshall Pruitt. This is our little Marshall Pruitt podcast. Thanks for joining in, family, old and new. Greatly appreciate all of you who've ridden along for, what, the four-plus years been doing this. And for those of you who are newer listeners, love the questions you send in. Love it, love it, love it when we get someone who calls themselves out as a first-time, first-time, sure, question submitter. I lovingly, mockingly refer to this show as my unpolished turd because I make many errors. I leave all them in, and it's just an accurate representation of all the things about me that are trash and dumpster fiery. Things that aren't in that realm. Well, they happen to be you. Is that pandering? I know I've said that in two podcasts in a row. Eh, possibly. Seriously, appreciate y'all. I love doing the show. It's because of you and what you send in for us to discuss. Also, a big thanks to Cooper Tires. Those fine folks not only make really high-quality road car tires, the Road to Indy, all presented by Cooper Tires as well, all shod by their slick racing products. Justice Brothers, manufacturers of fine automotive chemicals and lubricants, which I have used since 1986. Not a joke. And then finally, well, there's a little bit of a joke here. They're always doing fun stuff. That's Comical. Pals at TorontoMotorsports.com. Racing memorabilia, T-shirts, stickers, models, uh, gear of all kinds, you name it. Our pals north of the border, they keep us well-stocked in fun. So those are the three partners of ours that make this possible. What should I tell you before we get rolling with your questions? Been busy today. It's Tuesday evening at almost 7 o'clock. Was up about 12-ish hours ago to do an interview with someone uh, under embargo, which I look forward to you hearing that episode, which should post here in about uh, what five, what's, about 10 hours from now. Um, you should be hearing some news about that here shortly as well. So, yeah, been a busy day writing news stories, uh, sidebar stories, and putting a podcast together, all three of those uh, under embargo. And great time speaking with some drivers today about a variety of things. One of them I'm just compelled to share is one of my favorite people, William Jehoshaphat Power, your 2014 NTT IndyCar Series champion, also your 2018 Indy 500 winner. He posted that really awesome in-car video visor cam from Sebring testing on Monday. And like many of you, I wasn't sure the manner in which he did it. What kind of camera? Because it was inside of his visor, right in the middle of his head. And I can't think of any GoPros that he could use that would work. So rang uh, rang our boy DJ Willie P. Just got off the phone a little while ago, actually. Gave me the insight there. It's a pretty cool little thing made in France I'd never heard of. So that's awesome. And then we spoke about UFOs, and uh, which is one of his obsessions. And he mentioned another friend of the show, an IndyCar driver, uh, who he's gotten into, UFOs. So 
I've got some research to do about uh, Tom DeLong, the drummer for whatever that crappy blink whatever 925 whatever the name was band so he's yeah mr ufo guy so i'm just sharing this because of the many things i love about willpower it's his willingness and ability to go down rabbit holes and just keep burrowing and so none of that is said in a negative or dismissive or critical way i genuinely love it about the guy he has a curiosity about something he doesn't take it lightly. He fully invests himself. He's not a whack job or any of that stuff. He's like, hey, some people say this is a thing. I don't know if it is. Let me go all the way in and find out for myself. He's been doing that for years on all kinds of topics. So anyways, call to ask Will about the manufacture of the visor cam video device. And then you spend the majority of the time on the phone call talking about aliens. And hey, I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, beyond that, what else can I tell you? Uh, IndyCar test next week, the second one, no, the first one of the year in my neck of the woods at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca. I'd heard that they were going to be a handful of teams, a number of teams that turned up or were turning up, planning to. So in the back of my head, I said, oh, great. I'll, uh, I'll consider going down and... Um, I still might. I just learned, though, that it's just one team, and it's the same one that I saw down there last time. That would be Chip Ganassi Racing. So uh, we'll see. I might uh, might wander down there next week. All four cars are going to be there. And then I think, what, 1st of March, uh, we should have a bigger contingent. I believe Ed Carpenter, Meyer Shank, uh uh, Aaron McLaren SP, Dale Coyne, and uh, yeah, so might wander down there again. Uh, what else is going on? Towards the end of February, there's a test where approximately half of the field will be there at Barber Motorsports Park. So things are starting to ramp up, y'all. Uh, there's another one towards the end of March at Texas Motor Speedway, etc., etc. So <sighs> we're starting to get moving y'all so looking forward to uh to all that so with all that stuff that fell out of my face in the form of words that i said to you i think i should now do that thing called get to your questions and we should roll in a little bit of music bed as we always do why well i just like to do that and where are we going to start first one of the main items that came up from the monday test is where we start and for those of you, again, who are newer listeners to the show, we tend to put a couple of deeper topics up front, ones that we will spend a little bit more time on than maybe some of the others. So the first one here, Jeremiah Morell is asking about Oliver Askew and why he was testing James Hinchcliffe's Genesis number 29 Andretti Autosport Honda. Um, start with that one first. Uh, just say this Hinch was unable to test and for no reasons that are bad or scandalous, or there's no drama behind his inability to test. Uh, I can say that with full confidence because I asked also fairly confident in saying that there's no greater issue here 
in terms of him, the seat, uh, the stability, or anything else, any concerns about, oh, well, Hinch can't do the first test in his car right after he's been announced as full-time driver for the season, is there something behind the scenes and shadowy and bad? 1,000% not. So that's probably the, the most direct and easiest thing I can share. As for finer details as to why he was not there, all I can, again, all I can say is for the next time they're meant to be out and testing, you can look for James Hinchcliffe to be in that car. So a one-off situation. Uh, next question on this theme, Andrew Drybelbus. Hey, Andrew. He says, do you have any details about how Askew uh, testing for Hinch came about and if it might lead to anything with Andretti Autosport this year or next year? says, I've heard rumblings of Askew having a Indy 500-only ride uh, nearly done, and is that with Andretti Autosport? So taking this one, uh, the latter portion of the question, I've not heard anything about this test being the first step in further things happening for uh, our young 2019 Indy Lights champion later in the year with Andretti. I can say I am aware there is great desire for something to happen. I know that uh, Oliver would certainly love to learn that he is driving for the team in what we would have to assume the unused number 98 Honda uh, outside of the Indy 500, um, that that would be something he'd love to climb into. I'm unaware of him having the money to do that. And right now, Andretti Autosport as I am aware, is not in a position where it has free anything to offer with any of its rides. So if Oliver were to orchestrate an Indy 500 seat, that would be amazing, but I would need to get caught up on that a little bit to feel like uh, that was as real as you're suggesting that it is. So this was a true, real, hey, we have a short-term, quick need that popped up. Can you come test on Monday? And he said yes. Obviously, he won his Indy Lights championship with Andretti Autosport. They know how talented he is. I would suggest as well that although things did not go according to plan for Oliver at Aero McLaren SP, I don't think that that hangs over him at Andretti, and I would hope any other team, I don't think they're looking at him as being not as good as they thought or hoped as a result of not a totally stellar rookie season uh, with Air McLaren SP. I have to believe they look at him and say, no, 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 we know you're talented. If you look at the speeds that he produced on Monday at Sebring, you would have to conclude that... Uh, Given a shot in an Andretti car, he'd probably be just fine. So, yeah, I, again, would have to hope and believe that while there's nothing that I know of that's truly happening and, hey, he's going to be doing X amount of races for the team at this stage, I have to hope and believe that there is an ongoing willingness to keep looking for ways keep talking to sponsors, keep trying to find opportunities for him to be part of that team 
because while they are excellent right now, they get better if they can put him into the mix as well. Uh, Northern Penguin 01, do you have an idea or an an official unofficial time of how fast Askew was compared to the rest of the car's testing? And the answer to that is yes. And if I was smart Northern Penguin 01, I would have that sitting right in front of me to answer with haste and all kinds of fun and awesome stuff. Let me just find the little story that I filed to racer.com. He was P5 in the afternoon session. I seem to recall he was P4 in the morning session. So out of 14 cars there, all 14 Penske, uh, he was the fourth member of Andretti Autosport two from Air McLaren SP, two from Ray Hall Edmund Lanigan, and two from Ed Carpenter Racing. The only drivers faster, and he was actually tied on lap time with Joseph Newgarden. Um, I apologize, with Colton Herta. Uh, the fast times on the day, all unofficial. Pato Ward with Air McLaren SP at a 51.79. Andretti's Alexander Rossi at a 51.93. Joseph Newgarden for Penske at a 52.06. Colton Herta from Andretti at a 52.06. My eyes really are playing tricks on me. He wasn't tied. And Askew was fifth at 52.24. He was two hundredths faster than his replacement at Air McLaren SP, Felix Rosenquist. So things went well for him, plugged right in, and... That's the guy who we all expected to be uh, the guy. Last year, kind of everywhere he went, or more places than not, knowing he was a rookie. And yeah, just as we have seen with some other drivers, where they might not have a great year, and it might knock their confidence, and they might lose an opportunity because of that not-awesome year, you then get to the secondary question of so is this guy not as good as we thought or are they just done and they're flaming out i i can't imagine either scenario was ever truly real for young oliver askew so uh yeah can't wait for hopefully a real front-running team to be able to say come on let's do a second shot for you and i think we're gonna have a better time uh final question here on oliver askew and hinch comes from bill gray says Askew put in a stellar drive at the rolex 24 i should have mentioned that he won his class in his debut never done a sports car race never ever ever the brand new lmp3 class driving for the legendary bill riley riley technologies team spencer piggott one of his co-drivers uh, yeah, uh, we can say without a doubt that Oliver Askew, uh, he put in some starring performances during the race, and it's obviously a team achievement, and his other three teammates definitely contribute to the success that was delivered. We also need to be very honest and very transparent in saying that, yes, there's a certain kid by the name of Askew who just kicked a lot of ass, chased people down, went to the front, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
I think he really, I think he did himself some good there. I don't know how many IndyCar teams are going to have something to offer that's serious for the year. I would say that if nothing else, the demonstration that he put on at the Rolex 24 Daytona in LMP3 should be something that has many teams saying, so, uh, want to come do that for us more often than not this year? And yeah, uh, would just say that he certainly uh, delivered and deserves any and all awesome stuff that might come his way there. All right, we are moving on to another category. This is falling into IndyCar, sports car crossover stuff, and we have a number of things here. We're going to get to uh, some other fun stuff. We got more LED panel questions, of course. Uh, let's move to the second wave here from our pal Jerry Suddeth. says, the Rolex 24 had me thinking, which of the current crop of full-time IndyCar drivers were towards the end of their careers, he mentions Ron Hunter Ray, Will Power, etc. do you see becoming sports car drivers? Also, has Will Power ever run sports cars in America? I cannot recall him doing so. If not, would you know why? Don't know why, but I do know that there has been a desire. Same for Joseph. Uh, Pagano, I feel like I might have mentioned this last week. Pagano came into modern-day IndyCar series as a sports car champion. Now, he'd spent a year in champ car before that, uh, but nonetheless, reputation-wise, he came into the modern NTT IndyCar series as a known quantity in sports cars. And with a guy who had one year of IndyCar, but that wasn't a real selling point for a lot of teams. He's someone who impressed the living you-know-what out of Honda, Honda Performance Development, Acura, you name it, with his time in the American Le Mans series. Having seen what he could do there, having won a championship there, they said, hey, Sam Schmidt, uh, you need a guy who we think is going to be pretty darn special. They did. He did. They won uh, a lot of races, came, what, finished third in the championship one year. Um, pretty special stuff. So he, I would have to assume, came into Penske with whatever contract with a, and you know I'm going to do sports cars too, so let's not even you know bother uh, negotiating that part. It's just the deal. I don't know if that's the case for New Garden or for Power. I have no clue about Scott McLaughlin, who will be our guest on Wednesday in the Weekend IndyCar guest episode. But I can tell you that there is a serious interest from, I know, two of the other Penske drivers, and I have to assume the same for Scotty, who comes from sports car racing. Hunter Ray, he's been involved in sports cars since the mid-early 2000s. So, yeah, I while he doesn't have anything really lined up right now, I think he will be a sought-after commodity uh, once he's done with IndyCar. After that, I mean, you expect Bourdais, who's just coming off a full season in IMSA, to go back. He's told me, I asked him uh, a week or two ago, I'm like, hey, when you're done with IndyCar and whatnot, what do you want to do? Do you want to hang out? you want to go back to France? What do you think? He's like, no, man, we're staying here. You know, sports cars, I'll do it. You know, looking forward to it, love it. So, um he'll be uh he'll be here so who else uh dixon's dixon's a bit of a question for me and that's just because i have not asked him if you caught any of the rolex 24 daytona 
holy cow there should be no surprise but there there are a couple drivers he was going up against where you know maybe that sports car driver like a kamui kobayashi is regarded as just someone who walks on water he's so good and I can tell you that there were definitely stretches where, yeah, you could not make that claim when uh, either he was having to chase down Dixon or vice versa or whatever else. Bourdais and Dixon went at it for a while, which was spellbinding to watch. So I think, Jerry, in a perfect world, could we be talking about four or five of the at or near 40 if not a little bit over 40 indycar drivers really shifting to imsa full-time i think we will i think there's going to be a pretty cool transition there dixon's just the only question i don't know if he's going to keep doing that i don't know if he would want to do full-time or if he'd say hey I'll, i'll do the endurance races but you know hey i've been doing this for 20 plus years i've been doing this for half my life maybe i'm going to step back and just not be on the road all the time. I don't know, but I'll have to ask him. But whatever it is, Jerry, if you're a fan of IndyCar and many of its established champions, Indy 500 winners and such, and want to see them continue racing after they're done with IndyCar, feels like IMS is going to get a lot of gifts uh, from us in the open wheel world. I'm going to take a sip of coffee, by the way. I shouldn't be drinking this at 7.14 p.m., but yeah. Tony Chef 20. Says, I think the Rolex 24 raises the stock of IndyCar drivers. Seeing Rossi battling with former F1 driver Kevin Magnuson was awesome. So my question is, are IndyCar drivers the most underrated of all the racing series? Not really one I've heard before, Tony Chef 20. I think they might be among the highest regarded. Uh, and all, for all the many names that I just mentioned, as I open a bottle of water here, um, I don't, yeah, it's not really something I've heard so much. Uh, yeah. Rossi, boy, <laughs> that guy last year showed on more than one occasion at the endurance races that he was no one to mess with. And this year, yeah, uh, he was a rocket not just speed but when it came to being challenged by someone that guy was just blindingly fast or if he had to go chase someone down and knock however many seconds off of someone's lead or whatever whatever else i mean that guy uh yeah him good had the fastest lap of all the drivers in their rolex 24 winning acura arx05 by the way so, yeah, uh, not a surprise that your 2016 Indy 500 winner, he's not so bad <laughs> at driving them race cars. And I'm just happy for him to see him really demonstrate how fierce he was. That's another cool thing for those of you who like sports car racing as well, especially the long races. Cool in IndyCar, obviously, when you get Rossi, who's fighting with name whomever, and you'll get that for a little while, maybe a fuel stint at most. So what is that, 25 minutes, half hour, whatever the amount of time happens to be. Here, you can watch <laughs> Rossi just rage with someone for an hour or two or three doing multiple stints. He and whomever he's chasing or fighting with, 
They'll usually pit in around the same time and it just resumes. Uh, it doesn't always happen in IndyCar with a lot of variables to throw in. So just awesome to see him show how crazily talented he was in a different form of racing. Our pal John Wojnar, a.k.a. John Ranjow, I believe the cult leader of the Prudet listener sect. Uh, he says, MP, uh, what do you think of a couple feel-good stories like Spencer Piggott and Oliver Askew winning some wrist bling? They both got new Rolex Daytona watches. After a few tough years in IndyCar, could this open some eyes for owners to potentially get them back to IndyCar? You know, it's a little similar to one of the previous questions. I don't think it did at all, unfortunately. Uh, not an IndyCar for either guy, and it's probably because they won the LMP3 class. So not that that's a, a small achievement, just if you remember the broadcast. <laughs> uh, for anybody who might have been watching or gone back, any IndyCar team owners who were maybe tuning in and wanted to see or keep an eye, yeah, they didn't really show a whole lot of that at all. And if you go back and just watch the whole thing on and rewind it and use a fast-forward button, you're just not going to see much of it. So except for an IndyCar team owner who might have been paying particular attention at the track or watching timing and scoring just specifically to get a feel for Spencer or Oliver, uh, the answer would be no. But I'd also say I think every IndyCar team owner has a pretty darn good feeling for who Spencer Piggott is, having done, what, almost 50 IndyCar races, um, yada, yada, yada. So uh, if anything... Hopefully it's just opening more doors in IMSA because there are more doors, not many, but more to open for them. Uh, let's see. What else did he say? He says, during the Rolex 24, IndyCar tweeted out a photo of the track asking if fans would like to see an IndyCar race on the Daytona road course. Says, hashtag me personally, as fun as it sounds, um, and the potential to open a new kind of fan base in a NASCAR heavy market. I can't help but think it's almost too dangerous to run indie cars in the high banks. What says you? Uh, and mentions always praying for us. Well, thank you, my friend. IndyCar tested their what? 2005, 2006? Yeah. The let's take our cars that don't traditionally run at your place and go to your place thing. I don't know if this works at Daytona for IndyCar. I don't know if there's a huge fan base, as you point out, NASCAR heavy market, that's waiting to fill the grandstands to watch Indy cars there. I think it'd be amazing to watch. I th it'd be phenomenal to watch. I think it'd be a crazy race, but I just don't know if it moves the uh, proverbial needle very much. Uh, IMSA's GT cars racing on the Charlotte Roval moved zero needles but it was awesome to watch and a lot of fun and i hope that they do more of it in the future uh the brickyard 400 at indianapolis moved the needle in the beginning for sure but since then yeah it might be one of the top two or three most prestigious races on the calendar but is it really if people have kind of stopped watching and tuning in i know there's format changes for this year there but just saying the oddball series at a place where it doesn't usually run, it tends to be great for the fans. 
but you also don't often see the grandstands packed in the beginning or if you do have a good turnout it doesn't always stick so yeah i'm good with not doing it i'd love to see it just as a fan but i realize it probably wouldn't help anything and you mentioned the danger part let's not even go there uh let's see where else are we going here Chris McIntosh, you asked something uh, related to IndyCar testing on the short course at Daytona, and I don't know why I'm struggling to say words. Um, You asked about the results of the test. I don't remember. It's been way too long since I read about that, so I might suggest Chris. Chris? Jesus. Chris! (laughs) I'm just laughing at myself. Uh, Chris, my friend. I would just recommend using the good old Google machine and hopefully it will give you the answers that I'm failing to provide. I just did not commit it to memory whenever I read about it the last time 10 years ago or something like that. We're going to move on to Lake Effect Racing. Watching the Rolex 24 in the early stages, no offense to Foyt Racing, but it would seem pretty incredible to see Bourdais in one of the top three IndyCar teams and then take on Dixon. Yeah, uh we bring it up every now and then there was uh there was a desire to have sebastian bourdais as scott dixon's teammate but our awesome friend and entrant dale coin um made sure that that did not happen just as he shut down opportunities for justin wilson when he had some offers from bigger teams so yeah i'm with you I know that Seb is in the latter stages of his IndyCar career, but do not think the passion to go destroy everybody is the least bit smaller than it's ever been. The passion to go and dominate and destroy is there a thousand percent. His speed is still there all the way, etc., etc. So. If Seb has to look back on his IndyCar career and say, man, those four consecutive champ car titles were the peak of my career achievement-wise, that's still a pretty darn amazing thing. Uh, Of course, I would love to see my French fry in a situation where he can close out his IndyCar career on the podium with another at least one more win. I don't know if that's going to be possible this coming or this season with AJ Foyt racing. I feel like it could be the following year. And again, there's always the variables of, you know, poor timing for a yellow ruins things for one half the field and Seb comes out leading and wins. I get all that, but I'm talking about actually competitively taking on those in the uh, top teams and possibly winning. Feels like they're going to need at least another year of of work to have that become a possibility. I just want to see that for him, right? He he's been he's been a pretty darn good dude in the latter years here. I, mean, you, I hope most of you would recognize he's changed a lot. He's become much more open. He's funny, right? He's he's I think become a pretty good ambassador for IndyCar. I just want to see a a dear friend go out on his terms with success. So, I don't know. uh, I'm probably one of a few who have that feeling. 
Jared Burcham. How you doing, Jared? Says, watching the Rolex 24 and admiring all of those amazing LED panels. Is it time to start the, quote, LED panels for IndyCar 2021? Hashtag, where have the panels gone? Uh, hashtag, Day. Hashtag, the weekend IndyCar uh, uh, assault. Yes, we absolutely have to. Um, I'll mention this because it's amazing how many folks reference this and everyone tags me on their observations uh watching sports cars seeing led panels on those cars seeing led panels that show track position uh count the duration of the pit stop etc all things that indycar's led panels once did uh why can't we have those in indycar they work on prototypes. They work on GTs. Why can't IndyCar get their act together and just go buy some and put them on the car? Sharing what I've been told, resharing, if that's it, if that's the way to put it, this is a issue they have encountered with frequencies. The, the harmonic frequencies and vibrations going through an IndyCar chassis, which is very different from a prototype chassis, GT car aerodynamics are very different. The there's an imbalance, man, and it breaks things and it makes things fall apart and it makes things not work the way that they should. So unless I'm being fed a total line of BS, I've been told that by a few people at IndyCar, different people at IndyCar, not the same person telling me the same story over and over again, as if that needed clarification. Um, that's the reason I've been given. Yes, we we tried to go with newer, better, you name it, and it just didn't work. The ones that seemed to work without any real problems were the first-generation ones back from 2015. That lasted, what, three seasons, I think? Then they went to another, a newer, better, faster, all-LED one, something that had little whatever LED lights blanketing the entire panel instead of just the two areas where the numbers would be shown. That's where a lot of problems happen. Then there was a another version there, Motec, right? And that, I believe, those are the ones you see on most sports cars. Same vendor, same brand. And those did not survive. Just didn't survive uh, with the IndyCar application. So I know it's a bit of a jokey question here, Jared, and I'm not trying to take it too serious of direction as my mouth has a misfire but yeah um what i don't know is if the old 2015 era panels would fit the new 2018 uak bodywork i think they might not but i don't know but that would be a question is there a way and next time i speak with uh jay fry i'm gonna tell him look man uh you need to do this or you need to step down just, you know, one or the other, get the panels to the people or get out of IndyCar. At which point in time, he'll tell me, by the way, your hard card is permanently revoked. Uh, sports car boy, get out of here. So there you go. Uh, let's see. JJ Gertler, uh, Roger Penske rarely seems to get ecstatic or perturbed. Uh, while you know how Chip Ganassi's race is going by what color his face is. On a scale of where AJ is probably at one end, can you rank the current team owners by volatility? 
i.e. how likely they are to throw pit equipment when things go badly. Uh, and then you mentioned Harlan Fengler, by the way. Um, so thank you, because what would the Week in IndyCar be without a Harlan Fengler reference? Uh, okay, so team owners, uh, color of face, let's just go down the volatility chart and with AJ being at the top in your list, apparently. So again, you know, not a bad thing, uh, to channel our favorite Colombian driver. It is what it is. Uh, let's see where, where should, well, we'll just start at the top of the list. So if AJ Foyt is the peak, the Mount Vesuvius volcano erupting end of the list, I mean, I feel like we have to include Larry Foyt, right? So we, if if AJ is the nuclear end of the scale, I'd actually put Larry polar opposite. Yeah, the opposite end of that scale. Uh, Andretti Autosport, I, if this was a, however many years ago, five years ago, three years ago with Michael Andretti, I could be a little bit off on the timing. I feel like he would have been, you know, if AJ's a 10, I'd put him at about an 8, but it feels like lately he's more of in the 5. I think, yeah, give him another year, he could be a cool 4. Michael's chilling more, and it seems like as he does, things only get better and better and better. So I'm not saying there's any direct correlation. I just know that those two Things seem to happen in isolation, uh, and it's not a bad thing. Uh, Aaron McLaren SP. So we would have Sam Schmidt and Rick Peterson, the two owners of that team. Uh, Sam, I have never known to be a shouty, hitting things with hammers type guy. And I know, obviously, he's been a quadriplegic for a while. I've known Sam well before that, so that's why I'm saying I've never known him to be a ragey, explosive anger guy uh, before or after his crash. I see there's another there's another shade or avenue to this scale, JJ, and that is the the sniper, right? The ones, the you don't see it, you don't hear it, just done. Oh, game over, right? Uh, you could have the loud, screamy, smashy one. That'd be the explosive top of the scale. But I think you have to factor in there's a 10 that should be attached to the one who isn't shouty, screamy, red-faced, whatever, but whose actions and words and decisions are just as dangerous. And I've known Sam for a while to be someone who does not play. Good guy, all the positive platitudes I could offer there. Not talking about all the great stuff that Sam does and his spinal cord rehabilitation facility and charity. Again, we're not talking about that guy. We're talking about timing stand and or just in general team owner behavior racing scenario. And yeah, I just say that Sam is someone that if you are not correct and right, you're not going to hear shouting and yelling. You're just going to find yourself on the outside looking in. So yeah, 
uh, be straight. Rick, I don't pretend to know well at all, but I am aware from what folks tell me and just from the interactions I've had with him over the years, seems to be a pretty good guy. I don't know if there's shouty, yelly side. If there is, I'm just ignorant about it. So, yeah, I don't see a lot of high-temperature stuff there. And Taylor Kyle, the new El Presidente, um, he seems to be a of the coolish cucumber uh, strain. So I'm going to go in that direction. And if I'm wrong, hey, um, look forward to being educated. Uh, Carlin Racing, Trevor Carlin, good Lord. Is there a more battle-tested man? Is there a guy who has presided over more motor races than Trev, who's sporting a phenomenal beard that I saw in a uh, social media post from a couple days ago? I mean, I'm feeling like I am slacking on my beard game after seeing Trevor. Holy cow. Like that thing needs, like he needs to feed that thing a steak and a beer each day. That's what it, that's the kind of beard he's got going. Um, I, I mean, I'm, Trev does have, you know, Trevor's a, a pretty feeling heartfelt guy. Uh, I know that he feels things very deeply, but I would say the guy is on a thousand timing stands per year, whether it is the lowest rung of open wheel to e-scooter racing, which I believe they've entered into, all the way up to IndyCar. At sports cars, seriously, there are few people in our general world of IndyCar who are more involved in motor racing every weekend than Trevor Carlin. So... There's no way you get to be the giant success that he is and his team happens to be if you are at the A.J. Foyt end of the volatility thing. Uh, Chip, you kind of covered off Chip a little bit, so I don't feel like the need to go there. Um, I don't want to get killed as well. Dale Coyne, yeah, I don't feel like there's high volatility there. A little more of a gambler, a little more rolling the dice guy a little bit a little more seat of the pants so yeah uh shouting yelling whatever i am unaware of that being any real part of the dale coin experience uh if anything i just hear a lot of people in particular those who've left the team gone on to whatever other position somewhere else even drivers not all of them uh but even drivers who say they just have so much time for Dale as a person. Uh, let's see. Where else do we go here? Ed Carpenter? Yeah. Uh, not aware of him being a shouty guy by any means. Michael Shank? Big heart on his sleeve guy. Um, you know, he's going to pound the timing stand if something bad happens, but he's not a barking guy for sure. Rahel him in Lanigan. I mean, I'm working down the list here, and I think we're finding there aren't many on that upper edge, JJ. Uh, Bobby Rahal, yeah, that's not really him, but he's going to let you know if you are not delivering for sure. Uh, Roger Penske, Tim Sindrick, not, uh, again, same kind of vein. I'd put them, I'd put the two of them in the Sam Schmidt category of you're not going to get shouty, screamy, yelly guys. No, that's the opposite of their character but man they that the crosshairs are just perfectly perfectly positioned you do not 
want to be in a position to receive the uh, the cold laser fire from them uh, compared to the big fiery one. So I think most of them are pretty straightforward, JJ. And if not, then, well, again, uh, I'm sure they're going to call and shout at me. Uh, let's see. Where do we go next? EM Racing asks, what are some differences between car setups for street courses versus setups for permanent road courses? All right. Main setup differences to discuss here really come down to available grip between a street course and a road course. So if we go to a place like, let's say, mid-Ohio, and if we're thinking turn one, right? So cars row through all the gears, pretty high entry speed into turn one, hang that long left-hand turn, and they are flying through there. In that scenario where the track has pretty darn good grip and there's a lot of downforce piled onto the car as well, tons, all the downforce, basically, you'll notice that, for example, the camber settings on the car, the amount that the wheels are tilted inwards at the top. Uh, We'll just go with that. You'll notice that at a mid-Ohio, there's a lot of negative camber. Negative is the number when their top of the tires are pointed inwards. There's a fair amount of negative camber applied. Why? Say a turn one, firing through there at crazy, whatever the number is, 150, 100 and whatever miles an hour. A lot of grip lot of speed and because of those two items the car is going to roll a fair amount and there are anti-roll bars installed in the car the dampers are there to do their things and all that but despite that just physics at work this thing is flying through turn one and while doing that the car rolls and leans and while doing that Well, that negative camber, that pretty significant negative camber with the top of the tires angled inwards at the top, and I just said top twice for no reason. Well, while flying through that corner, turn one at mid-Ohio and everything rolling, what you'll find is those right side tires, for example, will lay flat. And that is why you will see at a natural terrain road course, like you've asked, where you have some very high-speed corners where there is ample grip. Those kinds of tracks, just if you're observing, whether it's TV or you see some photos or whatever, you'll notice pretty decent negative camber settings. Uh, The toe settings, that is where the wheels, if we're thinking of them, the tires pointing forward, toe out is positioning by a pretty small amount, but... The tires, why am I struggling to say tires, point outwards with toe out front and rear or toe in front and rear. Usually you will go with toe out at the front and toe in a little bit at the rear. We won't get into ovals, totally different thing, but you can adjust the rear toe to really help with the stability of the car based on a driver's wants and needs from it. But let's just say in a general term fast corners fast natural terrain road courses you're going to see a little bit more extreme approach to setup 
to compensate for the extreme speeds. When we get to a street course, a Long Beach, a Detroit, a Toronto and whatnot, there's rarely, if ever, anything in the way of real serious grip. The tracks tend to be polished a lot and or dirty and oily a lot, just worn. There's not much in the way of friction waiting to grab the tires in a corner and dig into them. It's a surface that, again, you can just expect that there's almost nothing trying to dig into the tires and hold on to them as those tires roll over the circuit. As a result, while the car is still going quickly, you don't see the crazy high speeds at a Toronto turn one as you do a mid-Ohio turn one. So since the cars are not going as fast and are not rolling as much, there's just not enough grip for them to try and carry that kind of speed through, you tend not to see as much negative camber because if you were to use that road course negative camber setting, a mid-Ohio and carried over to Toronto, well, going through turn one there, you might get half of the tire touching the ground, laying flat while the car rolls. Uh, There's just not enough grip, therefore not enough speed to go through the corners to do that. Uh, You get some other things too, and again, we're just talking generalisms here. On a natural terrain road course that isn't insanely bumpy, you'll see the ride heights get low, low, low. On a street course, one that tends to be pockmarked pretty bad, some bumps, some potholes, some whatever there might be, those are things that can tear up the bottom of an Indy car. So you'll get ride heights that are a bit higher just to preserve the car, preserve the underwing, the everything at the bottom of the car. Well, that extra bit of ride height going upwards, that's not exactly optimal for chassis handling but it's needed for chassis preservation. So plenty of other settings we could talk about here. If we're talking about roll and anti-roll bars, it's not uncommon for a street course for teams to go very soft on one end, uh, maybe disconnect altogether on one end. Probably, well, I shouldn't say probably, it really depends on what the driver wants, but... Um, If you're thinking street courses, you are not thinking extreme, aggressive chassis setup. Could there be a a faster steering rack that you use to help with some of the tighter corners? Yes. Could you go to a slightly more aggressive toe-out setup at the front of the car to help whip the car around those corners since there's not a lot of grip and that could help turn the car a little, again, There are some little things you might do, but in general, uh, road courses that have proper grip, that's where you're going to see a little bit more dancey, lively, ooh, wow, look at that, type things to make the cars perform because the track will reward it and make use of it. Street courses, not so much, unfortunately. Uh, Let's see, where do we go next? We go to Ross Porter Marshall, continuing prayers for you, your wife, Shabrell, and the cats. You're even praying for the cats, Ross. You are a fine human being. Uh, he says, I have a question about what was 
has always appeared to be a pitot tube mounted to cars' noses during practice and then gets removed for the race. Is it actually a pitot tube? Yes, it is. Uh, does IndyCar restrict the amount of testing and measuring equipment that may be installed for practice sessions? That's a great question. I don't know if there's a any kind of limit limit um, within the realm of, of normalcy, maybe. And I say that thinking of if you watched Formula One, if you watch any of the testing footage or photos that comes from Formula One around this time each year, uh, heck, even during the season, on occasion you'll see these big aerodynamic pressure mapping, uh, aero mapping, I don't know, gantries that they make. They're the, it's crazy. They're like the stuff they hang off the back of the car, you name it, all to try and measure airflow and whatnot. It's just for mapping not something that they would use in any real attempt to set a, you know, a pole position type lap, uh, set lap records. We've never, to my recollection, never seen anything like that tried by a team during an actual official IndyCar practice qualifying whatever session. But if it's internal stuff, stuff that's not hanging off the outside, if there's something where, whether it's a pressure tap of some sort or they want to measure airspeed within some section of the car, I don't think those are prohibited. I could be a thousand percent wrong. I just do recall seeing at times in recent years a little bit or bob here or there. Hey, there's a little infrared sensor that they've placed uh, staring back at the front tire, rear tire, you name it. And it's, you know, installed, held in place with helicopter tape, which is the, okay, this isn't permanent. This is just, you know, meant for a brief interval of testing, seeing things like that. So just, uh, suggests to me, sorry, my phone is blinking at me about stuff. I don't fully understand why. Um, makes me think that, yes, there is some permission here, Ross, provided it's not some sort of uh, major external disturbance. You know, hey, what is that big thing hanging off the car? Uh, I don't think any car really gets in the way of that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, and the pitot tubes do tend to come off for the race. It just, again, could be my own ignorance. I don't know if it's an actual rule, uh, knowing that it's, you know, connected to and part of the nose structure often. Um, I would think that, yeah, just knowing that noses get knocked off or there might be a change needed during the race. I've always just assumed it was a, yeah, I'd probably take that off too. Uh, no need to smash that up or if it might slow anything down and having to do a nose change. Yeah. Don't, uh, don't need that there. So there's that, uh, last couple of questions. Uh, we've got a couple here that we'll get to in a moment, but, uh, let's see. Below the line, I should say, Tristan Wood says, over the years, who has been a secret supporter of junior formula drivers from sharing a couch to sleep on to providing that little extra knowledge, maybe providing a ride to races, any current IndyCar drivers go above and beyond that we don't talk about? I don't know if we don't talk about them, Tristan. I'm trying to think of like, oh, are there any secret Santa Clauses that uh, have never been mentioned before? Connor Daly is one for sure. I know Rossi has been helpful. We know for sure Will Power has. Uh, we know Felix does. We know Marcus is involved. 
I think you might find for those who have road to indie lineage or in the case of say a Marcus who never any time on the road to indie, but there are some young Swedes coming up where he could pay attention or lend some advice or whatever, whatever. There's a lot of stuff like that. Um, you hear about drivers, Marco Andretti is one of them. I mean, uh, you hear about a lot of drivers privately who, whether it is advice or gear and equipment, hey, you know, so-and-so needs a new helmet and they don't have any money to afford a new one. Uh, let me send one of my spares over to them. Uh, could be money in some situations, maybe not a lot, but uh, it could be inviting, trying to bring that young driver in on something they're doing. Uh, media appearance or a TV thing back home, wherever it might be, where they know, all right, people are going to tune in for me, but this is a chance to give young road to indie type driver a little bit of uh, shine and spotlight they probably wouldn't get. It's a lot of stuff like that, you know, Canon, Castro Neves, uh, Dario. I mean, just run down the list. Dixon, for sure. I think I'm starting to mention everybody. I think in very rare instances, would we actually point to an IndyCar driver, Tristan, who hasn't done something at some point to extend a hand downward to help pull someone up uh, or pull them up a little bit, varying degrees, but it's maybe one of the cooler aspects, probably underreported. That's also a way of saying, I think I've been doing a crappy job, Tristan, and should have been talking more about this, but there is more, far more often than not, uh, a, a benevolent, benevolent, oh my God, benevolent <laughs> aspect to what many of your favorite drivers uh, do when it comes to the next generation. And heck, we even look at some of the retired legends and Ari Leyendijk trying to help out Renus VK whenever he can. I don't know if he's getting paid for it, but regardless, I know that he would even if he wasn't, if if he is. Um, that, I would say, is pretty cool because in some other sports, when you're the veteran quarterback and the team drafts, takes with their first draft pick a quarterback, you don't always get the veteran saying, hey, let me show you everything. So you can potentially take my job from me in a year or two or three or whatever. I don't see a lot of that in IndyCar, uh, at least these days. I don't see much of it at all. And I would say, I think, Tristan, that's pretty darn cool. So maybe I need to ask more drivers about this. I don't know how many would want to talk about it because many of them don't like their helpful things, the benevolent things they do. I don't really like them being broadcast because they just want to do it in private and leave it there. Uh, Ryan Terpstra, person I lovingly refer to as the show's spirit vegetable, not quite a spirit animal yet. Maybe you'll graduate. Uh, he's also the spirit S disturber. Um, it says Long Beach 2021 will be the last full season race for, and he leaves a blank question mark. He says, I think this is Pagano's last year full time huh that's a uh that is an interesting one there young mr terpstra 
Wonder why. Wonder why you have decided it is Simon's last year full-time in IndyCar. Believe his contract is up at the end of the year with Penske. Uh, would they no longer keep him? Would they not extend a new extension? Department of Redundancy Department. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I don't know if I, I would buy into that. Uh, Long Beach being the final race of the year now, of course, uh, for those who weren't aware. We'll readily admit, if I'm looking through the list of teams, and if we assume, based on your plot to derail our friend Simon Pagano, if we just go with your supposition here that he's done at the end of the year, which suggests he's done with Penske at the end of the year, where else might he land? Well, I'll tell you that I think our friends at Ray Hall, Letterman, and Lanigan would do everything in their power to find a seat for him. Uh, we'll just throw out, I hope that Takuma Sato stays in the series after 21. But if he doesn't, you know, you have to play the, well, if, in your world, Pagano is done at the end of 21 with Penske, where might he go? Well, then you have to play the what seats might be open game. Do I think that if Air McLaren SP has a solid year that they would look to go to three cars full-time in 22? I think they might. And I do think that Pagano would be someone they would definitely want. So Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan, Aero McLaren SP could, if money is available, he be a guy, he be, sure, he be a guy for Andretti Autosport to consider? I certainly think so. I would struggle, and famous last words, I'm always wrong with my predictions, but I struggle to see how this would be Simon's final year if by chance in, what, uh, eight months' time, if Team Penske says, we don't want you anymore, that there will indeed be no place for him to go to continue his full-time career. So hopefully for once, my prediction and ability actually functions properly. Bob Gravel, resubmission from last week. I feel like you've sent it in twice, Bob, so I apologize. Whatever number it is, I suck. says, uh, insert a light fist shaking here due to having to resubmit. There you go. Whenever you... Send in a question, dear listeners, and I don't get to it. And you really want it answered, right? Because I realize some questions are like, oh, yeah, I'll fire in a couple questions, but it's not like I've got 100% investment in those questions. If you've got full investment in the questions and I don't answer them, resubmit them. And as Bob has done, he said, insert a light fish shaking here. I encourage you to berate me as strongly as you feel is warranted to get the question answered if you're halfway with it you do like bob eh, light fish shaking if it's pruitt you f idiot get to my question just light me up with your opening to the resubmission not only will it catch my attention but usually it makes me laugh and so i really even more want to make time to answer it so we're doing that with bob he says would an ultra open team draw fans of the younger generation I propose a team where the operations are shared much more widely on YouTube and elsewhere. You'd see everything that goes on from rebuilding a car after a crash 
to if possibly a two, if possibly sponsor negotiations. It may be a competitive disadvantage to share so much, but I think it would draw new and younger eyes to the sport. Well, you in this scenario, Bob, acknowledging it would indeed be a competitive disadvantage. You would be effectively asking a team to commit team aside and take themselves out of the sport to draw more eyes to the sport. Because if you're getting in on sponsor negotiations and you're seeing, and eh, not so much the crash rebuild, but if, Hey, here's here we are in the garage and we're watching you do setup info or do chassis setup. And Hey, there's a setup sheet and here's this, here's that. Here's strategy discussions and so on, all open and live, ultra open, as you mentioned. You're revealing the playbook. <laughs> it's why, if we go back to NFL, you see every head coach with the laminated plays that they're about to call. In many instances, those plays might be new, but usually derivations of things they've called before uh, the reason they don't make them ready, readily available for others to see is to not tip their hand so they don't lose the game by handing the full plan to the opposing team. Uh, I like where you're going here. I think there is something to it, but just with limits. Because if you're opening up everything, first of all, I don't know if it would attract, air quote, the younger generation. I don't know. Uh, how invested is someone going to be at age whatever in just spending all day, all night on the YouTubes or the wherevers to follow every movement of a IndyCar team? I might think of many other things in life where folks much younger than I could be very obsessive and wanting to follow something. I know as a young person, I did that a lot. The things that I loved and drew my attention and I'm not so much talking racing, I'm talking music and this and that. It's just all-encompassing. So that's the age where you might do that a little more than someone who's 30, 40, 50, got kids and a mortgage and whatnot. I just don't know if we're talking serious numbers to make it worthwhile among the youth, the 20, 18 to 25 age range, which I just made up for no particular reason. I, I think it's interesting, Bob, and I think every IndyCar fan would actually love to have more insight and access. That appears to be the differentiator for so many things today than from not too many years ago, actually. We're going way inside this thing, and boy, you're going to see stuff you've never been allowed to see before. Don't know how many teams would be open to that in its entirety, but I think there could be something here and maybe not so much live. Just share one example. Sometimes when I do in-car videos with the team, not specifically IndyCar, frankly, more often than not, it's sports cars, uh, but I'll do in-car video. Sometimes it might be in-car audio, just audio, no video. And the team will come back, whether it's a privately owned team or a manufacturer or whatever, will come back and say, okay, happy to do it, love to do it with you. But we're going to need you to hold that until after the race. And I either say yes or no. And I know the reason why. 
And sometimes there's a little something to it. More often than not, there isn't. It's just paranoia. But when I ask for these things, it's usually because we're at a race weekend and there's full knowledge that, all right, uh, if you're going to be showing our in-car footage from practice or qualifying or whatever that is maybe different, you know, who knows if there's a camera from the TV host and whatnot in there, but I can just tell you there's been a number of times where folks have said, love to, but you're going to have to wait till we're done here because I don't want our rivals to see anything, uh, whether it's how the car performs through turn nine or just sitting there and wit- what we do with the knobs and switches on the steering wheel. Um, we don't want to see folks to see that we switched to this engine map or that engine map. I've had some say, yes, we can do it, and you could even put it up right now, but I need you to blur the entire steering wheel. I don't, I don't nothing because it has real time data, live data. You're going 173 miles an hour at turn in and you're doing this and that like blur all of it. We want nothing, uh, no data whatsoever. Flip side. Then sometimes you get the, Hey, yeah. And we got co- really cool data to overlay. You can use. And those are like, wow, fun. So I just mentioned Bob, there are a variety of, of scenarios. Sometimes the audio, like I mentioned, yeah, we don't want folks to hear where we shift and to go try and reverse engineer what our gearing might be. And, you know, uh, so there's many reasons folks will come up with. Nope. You can't look inside. Some of them are valid. Some of them aren't regardless they all own their equipment, own everything, and they are the ones who make the decisions. So with that said, I like the idea here. Could it be a little bit of a, quote, tape delay? All right, well, uh, we are showing you this thing that we did a day after or after the race. That might be a little bit more realistic. Uh, I have to think about whether there's some other scenarios where they might be able to show a little bit more of the inside stuff while it's happening uh let's see where do we go nick dovniak you're the last person before the red line of death that our pal tim falkowitz has inserted here uh so that's supposed to mean that i stop here uh but if i have time i get to a few others so there's not too many below the red line so i think we're going to get almost all them in here in the roughly one and a half hours i've set aside for this and I got to go get dinner going pretty soon here for Mrs. Pruitt and I. Nick says, if you could switch one race in F1 with one in IndyCar and vice versa, uh, which two would you swap? It says hashtag using the official hashtag on the Marshall Pruitt podcast. Hashtag me personally. I would choose Singapore for IndyCar as a nighttime street race would look and sound amazing. He says, I would send the F1 teams to mid-Ohio. Why? Because the thought of the F1 paddock in Entourage using the mid-Ohio facilities warms my soul. What says you? I say, Nick, I love you, man. You are just, seriously, it didn't just start today. You're the best. You uh, you ask great questions. You're an amazing fan of the sport, as are so many of you. And, Nick, you always find that little comedic knife to jab just a little bit. So I love you for that, brother. Boy, that's great. Could you imagine uh, Toto Wolf having to use the uh, the turlet on uh, in the paddock, the one at the very 
right, closest to the little tower, the little media center tower, the one where the last couple of teams are put into um, behind the pits there, uh, the little, I don't know, they're garages, I know that, but it's more just like a wooden shack, right? Three or four or five of them. At the end of that is a wooden turlet. And for those of you who haven't been to Mid-Ohio, oh, it's par- it's period correct charm. What year was Mid-Ohio opened? Like 1970 or something or 73? I mean, I'm just telling you. If you did a DNA test, you can't do DNA on wood, I don't believe. But hey, if you did carbon dating, I think you'd find that uh, that stuff has been there probably since the 1500s. I think that's when the bathrooms were built, well before the track. Um, If any of you have seen whatever kind of old-timey Western movies where the guy walks into the saloon and you got the little kind of swinging wooden doors that the bandit goes in through to shoot up place or whatever it just has that feel when you have to use one of the turlet stalls to actually sit down and do your business i mean these old wooden doors are just 100 percent taken from some new mexico outlaw town and i it's really just stolen from some sort of place in the old, old West. And that's what you get today in 2021. Uh, plus a floor uh, with liquids on it that, uh, oh, could you imagine Mercedes F1 boss Toto Wolf having to go sit down uh, for a while and handle his business walking into that Mercedes Formula One team withdraws from Mid-Ohio Grand Prix. Uh, Wolf cites bowel impactedness due to refusal to sit and use anything like they offer uh, there. Oh, my gosh. Could you imagine? I mean, Lewis Hamilton's dog would be like, nope, nope, ain't doing it. So... I'm I'm exaggerating a little bit. I do love Mid Ohio. Uh, I truly, it is old timey. It is old, old, old. It is in need of a full remodel and refresh, facilities wide, more than just about any other track I can think of that receives professional major racing series to race there. yeah, so I love the Mid-Ohio, and I love the kind of evil angle that you've brought into this, Nick, too, because it's really funny. Singapore for have one sounds like fun, and yeah, a night street race. It's, right, it's kind of the best. Um, never been. I don't, I'd want to go, but I don't know. I would probably melt like fat guy in 900% humidity. Eh, not a good look, but yeah, it just looks spectacular. So I love that idea. Um, what would I, I'm just going to go with yours because they're really excellent. So, uh, I'm just going to go with that. So that's what I says. You, you says, I, it was a great call there, Nick. Uh, let's get to three more here to close the show. Our pal, Peter nut from the land of halls, Holland says, first time writer, 
long time. Oh, wait, no. Uh, he says, what do you believe should be a viable goal this year for Rami G? He says, besides not catching fire. Holy crap, man. That, that, that's a little, that's a little brutal there, uh, Peter. So I saw this when you sent it and it genuinely took me until a little bit before I started recording to figure out that when you were saying Rami G, you were referring to Roma Groschon. I was thinking Rami, whose last name I frequently forget, the insane kind of super fan who fakes his way to get into media center and all kinds of stuff at racetracks using very old credentials that he should have never been given, uh, who's just a real pain in the behind. So that's just where my pain, my pain, my brain goes. Sorry. My painful brain goes when I see Rami written. Uh, viable goal. I think Groschamp could have a couple of top sixes. I think he could be very competitive, will be very competitive at a handful of tracks. And I'm not talking about, hey, he's quick on Friday or, hey, he's quick on Saturday. I mean, race day, Sunday, road and street courses, I think that there are going to be some events where he really stands out, and I think that there are going to be a number where he does not. And two things here to close this off somewhat quickly. It's his history. He has a very up, down, or don't know he's there uh, record. I realize he's driven for a number, or he's spent many years driving for not very good Formula One teams, a couple of highlights in there, but a lot of a lot of years that weren't great. Even then, there are some events where you go, all right, uh, beat up your teammate and beat him badly. It doesn't happen. You go, all right, well, huh, okay. Uh, there are the events where you go, I didn't even know he was there. There's the events where you go, well, all right, hey, geez, this is on the road to being awesome. Might not work out that way. The Haas F1 team in particular they conspired to not make great results for him on a number of days where it looked like they were going towards something good. But regardless, uh, he's crashed on his own bit of an all over the place guy record wise. And so no disrespect, but he reminds me a lot of Takuma Sato coming into IndyCar where it was like, Whoa, look, he's really quick on this occasion. Whoa, he's in the wall on that occasion. Uh, was he there on another occasion that smoothed out a lot? That's pretty awesome, but he still has that thing going a little bit. Romain has not to my knowledge, as I've watched him in F1 pretty much, I think since his debut, it doesn't look like he's smoothed out the curve. And so that's the thing that maybe if he can be here for a couple of years, maybe that can be a new reality for him where you go, hey, can I count on Romain to show up at every race and be there or thereabouts? That's the thing that makes a Dixon, a New Garden, a Herta, an Award, a Rossi, and we can go on and on and on. That's what makes the finer IndyCar drivers, and probably in every series, that's what makes them stand out as a finer driver. 
you're not going to be great everywhere. There are days where you're not even going to come close to a top six, but you're not fading into irrelevance and you're not chucking the car off the track and smashing it up for whatever futile effort to try and turn a ninth place into an eighth, which isn't really going to do much for us in the championship, and you need to really understand the risk versus reward factor here. So my hope for Romain, especially with a terrible end, to his Formula One career with that insane crash and the burns and the pain, just human to human. I hope that that guy has an awesome year and receives fulfillment and peace and joy in being a race car driver, knowing that he's in a car that, while they're not going to have the budget of the lead teams, and I don't expect them to magically be, you know, uh, second on the team depth chart, he has the ability to be competitive. The team he's working with has won races as recently as, what, 2018 with Sebastian? They can do impressive things and win a couple races each year. Just saying here for Romain, I think there's going to be an adjustment period. I think not having to drive with immense desperation will be a new thing he's experienced it before in his career it's just been a while so i think we're probably going to have pretty much the guy that we've seen for the last couple of years who you don't know what you're going to get from one weekend to the next that's what i expect to see for the majority of this year but i also think there's a strong possibility that if he settles in and realizes that look man a hundred percent is enough I don't have to be way beyond that to try and extract performance, take crazy risks uh, like I have had to or chosen to. I think the sooner he comes to that realization, I think the stronger likelihood, Mr. Nut, that he actually can be consistent. So that's my hope. I believe that's the possibility here, and I'm rooting for him seriously rooting for him uh how could you not uh philip ennis 99 uh and i hope that's not phil it penis 99 um says with an abundance of middle-aged men in the indycar field this year where would this rank all time as far as a number of soon-to-be aarp members oh wow here we go um i would say not very uh, what as recently as the early 90s, we had a couple of drivers who were very active in their late 40s, some in their early to mid 50s, if not more. So, yeah, one of the cool things in terms of evolution and development is while we do have some senior IndyCar drivers in the field these days, they're all pretty much delivering at crazy high levels with no drop-off. That used to be the thing where you'd have some drivers who are getting old and they're hanging around and it's they were making a lot of money or had whatever reason to be around. Yeah, they weren't necessarily the sharpest weapons in the field. Although all of our drivers now full-time are nowhere near that age, they're still, uh, there's been no no let up in the get up and go so 
yeah, we're not quite there yet in terms of, wow, uh, the retirement tour has just taken place almost in every single team. So uh, there you go. Uh, we're going to close with a rant from Ed Joris. And Ed sends in a number of questions usually. I don't get to many of them because for whatever reason, I don't find that they fit whatever my wherever my head is at, Ed. But, you know, if you've listened this far, then darn it, we're going to close the show with a rant from Ed Joris. He says, I'm going to be very disappointed in IndyCar. And he says, IMSA falls into the same category. If the coming hybrid cars are less technically sophisticated than a year 2000 Honda Insight or a first-generation Toyota Prius. So it's dumbing down race cars in the name of budget has to stop. Let Honda Performance Development and Ilmore play with the programming for the hybrid system. If you don't, they just are going to spend more money trying to duplicate the series-deleted control uh, with what they do have control of. It says, in my 2020 Honda Hybrid, I can adjust region braking, I can stiffen the dampers, I can make the steering sporty. Says the car keeps my wife from running into the back of vehicles. Well, that's nice and sexist, Ed. Thanks. Um, and it tells me if someone's in my blind spot on either side. Three wide, anyone? He says collision mitigation for how pit lane uh, for the pit lane should be a no-brainer. He says, and we have to get over this aversion to traction control. How was the racing at the end of the Daytona Twenty Four? He says, did traction control hurt the show any? He says, no. He says, uh, fake TC, traction control, wink, wink, has to cost more than real traction control. So I don't disagree with a lot of what you said. Um, I probably should have just skipped over the part about your wife. Um, I'm due to catch up with Jay Fry. And... I know that I have, while we're talking blind spots, uh, I have a bit of a blind spot in terms of what they are thinking for overall technology when it comes to the next vehicle. Uh, And that means, yeah, I know that we're getting a hybrid power unit, one where the Slightly enlarged internal combustion engine is going to make more power, but the real new new thing coming is somewhere between 80 and 100 electric horsepower from a kinetic energy recovery system. But we have been told so far it's going to be a closed system. It's going to be spec. There might be a time in the future where the manufacturers can get in and, as Ed mentions, play with the uh, software and the controls of it, express some of their talent there. That'll be a differentiator, maybe a performance differentiator. Who knows? But what I don't understand or have a feeling for is if and what else they might want to bring in. And where, why I wanted to make sure that we got to this one, Ed, and I think it is a good show closer here as we uh, just get ready to say farewell. When you are connected to an auto industry, Now, we only have two manufacturers committed right now, but again, there's a hope that there'll be a third and more that come in with this new 2023 engine formula. When you come up with an engine formula and what we now have, which will be a hybrid engine formula that is connected to the auto industry representing the wants and wishes and, hey, we spoke with the auto industry and they said, yes, do this. This is good. We want that. When you do those things, I I see nothing but positives. 
but you have to ask yourself if that's the only area you want to focus on how strong are those strands truly to the auto industry so maybe i'm closing with a little bit of a rant on the rant that you opened up with ed so if it's just the hybrid angle all right cool well general motors just announced in the last week or so that in the next 15 years they expect to convert all vehicles everything they sell pure electric that's massive that means although 15 years is a long time uh when indycar's new hybrid engine package comes and we have this not it's not totally lacking power but somewhat nominal electric horsepower addition that's going to show up in 2023 it's supposed to run five-year lifespan what 23 24 25 26 27 end of 27 is when that formula is supposed to be up we're half you know we're not too far from that 15-year span so by the time this upcoming engine formula arrives i think we might be saying that hybrids and kinetic energy recovery systems might be a bit old-fashioned might be a bit old-timey not seen which is my point not seen by the auto industry where you want to have real strong connection and strands as relevant so i think i think i might have mentioned this to someone else i don't know if i mentioned on the last podcast this current engine formula that debuted in 2012 it is so far beyond when it was meant to go away and be replaced it's just not it's no longer a joke like this is so old still works but just talking when they planned on phasing it out and doing something new we're more than double more than double the time span first thought here so if it's coming out in 23 it's supposed to last five years and wrap up by the end of 27 will it or will indycar kind of do what it's done here and extend and say all right well we're going to use it through 2030 well then all of a sudden we're really not far away from gm moving to pure electric and we'd be really old timey we would have to believe at the rate technology is moving uh here that it'll be old timey so maybe in this instance maybe they do stick to that five-year plan because maybe it will be something where chevy and honda go uh no (laughs) we're not going to extend we got to do something because we can't even begin to market this because it's so old well this is where as ed is mentioning uh on the braking side the damping side the steering wheel side the you mentioned blind spot but i'm just thinking lidar radar every kind of dar looking here and there if you weld yourself to the auto industry through one strand being engine hybrid and the hybrid itself being something that probably is going to phase out sooner much sooner than later i just have to wonder if indycar is thinking of allowing some of these other items in that are relevant to auto manufacturers whether it is braking suspension uh awareness devices assistive devices electronics 
in general data systems heads up head up heads up display or tablets or whatever it might be i just have to wonder if you really want to be connected and be relevant and maybe do a little bit of relevance proofing to make sure that well hey if the motor you chose for five years turns out to be a little bit of a marketing dud by 2025 what other things are manufacturers allowed to get involved with that would give them reasons to say all right cool we've got four five six strands that are tight connected to indycar in this example and if one or two falls off in relevance well we got some others that we're working on and can develop that's the those are the questions i'm going to ask jay when i speak to him next i'm probably going to keep asking those questions as well just from a a long-term safety and relevance standpoint if you want to if you want to stay deep deep in a happy place with manufacturers you got to give them things that they're going to be happy about and so what i'm saying is not really critical of indycar i just want to be clear about that it's indycar being at a place in time where for the first time in just about my lifetime the automotive industry is shifting rapidly to a new place that it's never been And so as a racing series, it is tough to be partners with manufacturers and to try and give them all the things they want to keep them happy and keep them around when they are indeed going different places, doing different things, adapting and modifying and changing at a super rapid rate. Like I said, General Motors, 15 years, all electric. We'll see if it happens again. You know, uh, it's a, it's a desire and they're pushing for it, but they've made that statement, put their stake in the ground and said, this is who we are. We are going to be. Therefore we're go. If we're not them, if we're not full electric people now, this is who we're going to be. And therefore we are changing who we are to get there. Makes it really hard to see how reasoning and relevance remains with any racing series if it's not opening up a lot of reasons for that series to be happy and say, okay, we still got some strands that are super strong and we can evolve and play in those where maybe it's a little bit harder and way more costly to say, oh, we're going to throw that engine package away after three years and keep doing new stuff every two or three years as things evolve. That would be too much for everybody. No one could afford to do that. That's just why you start to look at the other areas to really bolster that relationship and give yourself better odds. So I like where you're headed here, Ed. Um, I'm in full agreement. Probably not surprised you and I, when we communicate through the other social media platforms, tend to do that on topics of technology. So need to talk to Jay about this and get a feel. I've said these things, honestly, many times before to the series. Uh, I often wonder if I'm wrong because I don't usually get a lot of head nodding and agreement. Um, but I'm going to bring it up again because it just seems like the circumstances, the scenario that envelops IndyCar, it's changing with manufacturers. Will IndyCar be ahead of the curve here or behind? All right. I am Marshall Pruitt. 
This is your Week in IndyCar Listener Q&A. I did just get a Part 2 Word document that came in from Tim Falkowitz. So that tells me we're probably going to be doing a Part 2 later in the week. Uh, let me see. What did Tim say some of the uh, topics are here? Uh, upcoming Dale Coin Racing announcement, which is meant for tomorrow. Robin Miller uh, being inducted into a, the Motorsports Hall of Fame of America. I'm a member of voting member i may have voted for a man miller by the way uh schedules let's see uh there's questions in there he says about andretti and rossi and various stuff from there so really do appreciate all that tim does for us and we got scotty mclaughlin tomorrow that's pretty darn good and i appreciate you i'm gonna say farewell with a thank you to cooper tires the justice brothers and torontomotorsports.com